Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. My name is Luke, and it is an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning bringing you God's word. Um, Do we have a picture of my family for up here? This is my family. Uh, This is my wife, Tracy. She's uh, not here right now. She might come to the second service based on how the roads are. Um, Our daughter, Grace, our son, Dexter, they're seven and five. And then our newborn, Sophie, who was just baptized a couple weeks ago, which is when this picture was taken. Um, She is our little surprise, and she continues to surprise us. Well, like Dan said, um, Joshua 11 is not an easy passage. Um, You've been going through the book of Joshua over the past couple months. And if you remember, Joshua is the person who took over leading the Israelites after Moses died. And he's led them into this promised land, uh, Canaan, which God had promised to them generations ago. And this is, Joshua is an action-packed book. There's a lot of fighting. Um, The problem is that the land that God promised to his people is currently occupied by others, by uh, these pagans who actually oppose God, who oppose his people. And the way that God goes about solving this problem is through warfare against the Canaanites. And you've seen some of that warfare. You've seen the Israelites conquer Jericho. You saw them conquer the kingdom of Ai. And last week, you heard Pastor Dan preach about uh, the Israelites conquering the southern kingdoms in Canaan. And something that you see throughout all of this, all this warfare, all this conquering through the whole book of Joshua, is just how God has been faithfully with his people every step of the way, fulfilling his promises to give this land to them. And we're going to see that continue today as we look at Joshua chapter 11. With that said, let me open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that just like the Israelites, you are with us every step of the way. Help us to hear your word this morning to receive whatever it is that you have to say to us today. God, I pray that you would use this passage to shape us more and more into the image of your Son. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, in your household, who is in charge? If you have kids in your household, who would they say is in charge? It can be a complicated question, Maybe depending on which kid you ask, you might get different answers. Maybe dad thinks that he's the one who's in charge, when really everyone else knows that it's mom who calls the shots. Maybe in your household, it feels more like the kids are in charge. It feels that way in our house sometimes. Or maybe when you were growing up, it didn't feel like there was really anyone in charge. 
Family dynamics, they're complicated. We know this. And it can be hard to establish who's actually in charge. Well, in our home, uh, I think we've struck a pretty good balance, at least on our good days. I think my wife and I are both in charge as a unit. And if you asked our kids, I think they would probably agree with that. However, there are definitely times when our kids don't act like mom and dad are in charge. They know in their heads that we're in charge, but that doesn't stop them from bickering with each other. They know that we're in charge, but we still have to tell them 10 times every morning to put their clothes on, get dressed, and ready for school. They know that we're in charge, but they have still told us blatant lies and have tried to get away with things behind our backs. They know we're in charge, but they don't always act like it. Well, something our passage is going to highlight today is the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, simply put, it means that he is in charge. It means that he has power and authority over every square inch of the universe. And we know this. We know that God is in charge. But just like my kids, we don't always act like it. A lot of times, maybe even most of the times, we act like we're the ones in charge. You know, it can be frustrating to have to tell my kids 10 times every morning to get dressed? But how many times does God tell us to do something before we actually do it? We know in our brains that God is in charge, but how often do we blatantly disobey him just because we want to do things our own way? If someone looked at your life, would they see the life of someone who believes that God is sovereign? Or would they see the life of someone who thinks they're in charge of their own life? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see what it means to actually believe that God is sovereign. We're going to see that because God is our sovereign king, we must submit to him completely. And this passage, it shows us that submitting to him completely means trusting God's promises it means obeying his commands, and it also means that we should expect him to judge sin. So first, because God is our sovereign king, we must trust his promises. This is a longer uh, passage, so we're going to take it in chunks. We're going to start with verses 1 through 9. Uh, so let's read God's word together. Joshua 11, 1 through 9. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, heard of um, Joshua defeating the southern kingdoms, which you heard last week. When he heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphath-dor, on the west, to the Canaanites, in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, and with very many horses and chariots. 
And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Maram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Maram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Well, in verses 1 through 5, we see this massive alliance of kings coming together to join their forces to try to stop the Israelite army. There's a map on the back of your bulletin if you're interested in where some of these kingdoms are. Um, And you saw last week in chapter 10, the kingdoms in the south, they all did the same thing. They banded together to try to fight Joshua and his army. And we know that that didn't go well. So these northern kingdoms, after hearing about this, they just try to go even bigger and badder. They figured if they just get together a bigger army with better weapons, then they'll be able to stop this Israelite army. And this army is so big, verse 4 calls it a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with many horses and chariots. We don't know exactly how big this army was, but it's safe to assume that it vastly outnumbered the Israelite army. And what's more is that they had horses and chariots. It might not sound like much, but these were game-changing weapons in ancient warfare, and the Israelites had no experience fighting against these types of weapons. In modern terms, uh, it might be comparable to a tank on the battlefield. If you've ever watched a war movie, what happens when the tank rolls in? Everyone scatters, because they know that their puny guns are no match for a tank. So this is what the Israelites are up against, a bigger army with better weapons. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And in verse 7, we see how Joshua responds. It says, So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Maram and fell upon them. It doesn't tell us really what Joshua was feeling in those moments, if he was afraid or if he was skeptical whether God was going to keep his promise or not. It just tells us what he did. He trusted God. And we see the result in verse 8. It says, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. This is the interesting part in verse 9. It says, And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said said to him, He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Why in the world would God command them to do this? 
Why wouldn't they just take the chariots and the horses for themselves if these are such great weapons? The simple answer is because they didn't need them. Their strength is not in the best weapons, in the most advanced military. It's in the sovereign king who leads them into battle. Pastor Dan told me that there are a lot of kids in this church, and we've got a lot of kids at Emmaus Road, too. Um, It's about a third of our congregation is kids 13 and under. And I'm the director of children's ministry there, so you can imagine that it makes my heart glad to see all these children here in church. And if you have kids of your own, or if you've volunteered with them here or worked with them in any capacity, you know that it's true that sometimes kids do, in fact, say the darndest things. I can't tell you how many kids at our church have come up to me straight-faced and just walked up and said, you don't have any hair, and then just walk away. (laughs) Kids say stuff. Well, imagine if one of the kids in this church came up to you and told you they were going to give you a million dollars. What would your reaction be? You might play along and act really excited, but if you actually believed them, you'd be a fool. Now, Imagine that a close family member or a trusted friend, imagine that they won the lottery and they called you up and said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. It's a little more believable. This is someone who actually has the means and the ability, not just some random kid with a big imagination. Who is making the promise actually matters. And the person making this this promise to Joshua to hand over his enemies to him, it isn't some random kid. It isn't a false prophet. It isn't even one of his military leaders. No, it is the sovereign God of the universe. He has the means and the ability to keep this promise. In fact, what God doesn't have the ability to do is to break his promises. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's not just that God doesn't lie. It's that he can't by his very nature. John 17 verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's not just that his word is true, but it's that his word is truth itself. God cannot lie. Now, I don't know what it looks like for you in your specific season of life to trust God's promises. Maybe it means trusting that he will actually forgive you if you repent of some ongoing sin in your life. Maybe it means surrendering your anxieties to him, knowing that he will provide for you in all of your ways. Maybe it means taking some hard steps in a relationship, knowing that God will never leave you or forsake you. 
Or maybe it means just staying the course in a hard season, trusting that God will strengthen you and help you, upholding you with his righteous right hand. It can be hard to figure out how to apply God's word in our specific situations that we're in in our life. We can be honest about that. But what we do know is that God's word is true. He keeps his promises, no matter how unlikely they seem. And we can have assurance in this. We know that we can trust the promises of our sovereign king. And because he is our sovereign king, we must also obey his commands. Let's look at the next section of verses, verses 10 through 18. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Here we see Joshua is turning his attention to the cities of Canaan. See, God didn't just bring the Israelites into this land to fight armies, but actually to conquer the land that he promised them. So Joshua starts with Hazor, which was probably the most influential city in the area. Uh, it's where King Jabin, the guy who formed this massive alliance against Israel, uh, where he was king. And we see in verse 11, the, they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. You know, we can get lost in the weeds uh, thinking about the extent of the destruction in this chapter. And those are discussions that we can have. But it's not really the main point of this passage. The main point is the obedience that we see from Joshua. In Deuteronomy 20, God commanded the people of Israel to devote to destruction the people who were in Canaan. We see this in verse 15. Just as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua is not conquering these cities because he's power hungry. He's not putting people to death because he hates them. 
His actions here are based on the commands of God. You know, the scriptures, they don't give us much insight into the thoughts or the emotions of Joshua as much as his actions, but he was a human, and I've never met anyone who wants to follow God's commands 100% of the time. This was a long military campaign. It involved a lot of violence and exhaustion, but Joshua follows God's commands fully. Despite whatever he was feeling or whatever his desires might be, he obeyed God's commands because he knew God is his sovereign king. They say that trust is one of the most important parts of any relationship, whether it's with your spouse, with your kids, your coworkers, your pastors. You need to be able to trust each other. And I think one of the relationships in life where trust is extremely important is your relationship with your mechanic. I'm not a car guy. I don't know where the transmission is in my car. I have no idea what a catalytic converter does. If I take my car to the shop to get some work done and they tell me I need to replace the flux capacitor or that I'm low on blinker fluid, I'll believe them. I'll just be like, yeah, that's about what I thought. A lot of us, we need to be able to trust our mechanic because they could really take advantage of us if they wanted to. And those of you who have a mechanic that you trust, you know how valuable that relationship is. To be able to trust someone who knows better than you and who actually genuinely wants to help you. If you have a mechanic like that, you listen to them. You take their recommendations seriously. Even if it's hard news and the repair is going to cost more than you expected, which it always seems to, uh, you still listen to them. You do what they say even though it hurts. Well, if you would do that with a mechanic, why wouldn't we do it with God? If you're not listening to him, if you're not obeying God's commands, can you really say that you trust him? Can you really say you believe he's your sovereign king if he's telling you to do one thing and you go and do another? If you continue to look at things on the internet that you know he forbids, can you really say that he's your sovereign king? If you're making a habit of drinking too much, is God really your king? If you've given up on your marriage, or if you're holding on to bitterness, if you find yourself hating people on the other side of the political aisle, if you're repeatedly disrespecting your parents. Is God really your king? Or have you made yourself the king of your own life? It's either one or the other. There is no neutral ground. I know the word obedience, it can feel like a heavy word, especially when you're in a church. And I know that some of you, maybe all of us, struggle with the concept of being good enough, of obeying enough, of being what people expect us to be. 
Well, I have news for you. God expects you to be perfect. Anything less is not good enough. But this is why Jesus matters. Because there's not one of us who can follow God's commands perfectly. But Jesus did. If you have trusted in him alone for salvation, his obedience is counted to you. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of his son. It's for this reason that obedience to God's commands, it's not a burden. It's actually a joy. It's something we get to do in response to his loving kindness rather than a way to earn his love. If you believe this, if you believe that God is your sovereign king, the only appropriate response is obedience. We must obey our sovereign king. We must trust the promises of our sovereign king. And we must also expect our sovereign king to judge sin. Let's look at the last verses of this section, verses 19 through 23. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. We see here God's judgment against the people of this land. You know, these people were pagans who, they did not acknowledge God. And when the people of God came into their land, they actively opposed them. It says in verse 19 that there was none who made peace with Israel except the Hivites, which you saw back in uh, chapter 9 a couple weeks ago. And it shouldn't surprise us that they would oppose the Israelites. They were invading their land after all. But we're actually given another reason why they opposed Joshua and the Israelites in verse 20. It says, It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, this language, it should make you think of Pharaoh and how God hardened his heart against the Israelites. God's not doing anything new here, but it's still kind of surprising for us to hear. It might even seem unfair. Like, how can God punish these people for doing something he made them do? Well, it's important to note that just like with Pharaoh, God wasn't forcing these people to do anything that they didn't already want to do. It's not like they were going to welcome the Israelites into their land before God hardened their hearts. 
No, these people, they already opposed Israel. They already opposed God. And God just gave them over to their already sinful desires. He hardened the sinful desires of their hearts that were already there. And he did it so that they would be devoted to destruction and judged for their sins. God used the obedience of his people to judge the sinful disobedience of the Canaanites. No, we we are a people who crave justice. We want to see people punished who do bad things. And where do we see this more than when we're driving? Anytime I see another driver do something that's especially thoughtless or dangerous, I'm looking around to hopefully see a cop that's going to go pull them over. But that never seems to be the case. The cop's never there at the right time. And the driver just gets away with their bad behavior, and I'm left craving justice. Well, the funny thing is that when we make a mistake on the road, when we're in a hurry and we drive a little crazy, then we're praying there are no cops around. This was me this morning, actually, on the way here, approaching an intersection. The light turned yellow. I tried to stop. My car was just sliding, though. So I knew I just had to go, and I had to run a red light. And I'm immediately just looking around, like, I hope no cops saw this. We want justice against others, but we don't want it for ourselves. We want justice when we want it, against those that we want it for. Well, do we really believe that God is our sovereign king if we think that way? Or are we just viewing ourselves as the rulers of our own lives, crying out for our own personalized form of justice? You know, the way that God judges sin, it doesn't always play out how we want. There are many times that we see evil in this world And we look around as if we're looking for that cop, wondering, where is God? We see the terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel, and we wonder, where's the justice? We see children neglected and abused in our communities, and we cry out for justice. Things happen in our own lives that feel very unfair. Maybe the way the uh, boss treats you or the way your spouse lets you down. Maybe someone that you trusted lies to you. You want justice. And justice is a good thing. It is good and right to crave justice. It's how God created us. But whose justice are we actually seeking? Are we seeking God's justice or our own? We should expect God to punish sin, but we shouldn't expect it to look how we want. There are many times where God may act dramatically, like he did throughout the book of Joshua, bringing destruction against individuals, maybe even against nations who oppose him. There are other times when it might seem like God's not doing anything to bring justice against evil. But the point is that God judges sin in his own perfect timing. He isn't subject to our own personal desires for justice. In fact, we are actually subject to his perfect justice. And he will judge every sin. 
Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, it says that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. God will judge every sin. He'll judge every sin in your own life. The question is whether his wrath will be poured out on you or on his son, Jesus. Again, there is no neutral ground here. Someone is going to pay for your sin. Is it you in eternity? Or is it Jesus at the cross? Who's in charge matters. It matters at home, it matters at school, it matters in the workplace. In some cases, uh, who's in charge actually matters so much that it's a matter of life and death. Imagine if I were to book a flight to Florida, and when it came time for me to board the plane, instead of going to my seat, I charge into the cockpit and demand that I fly the plane. You think they would let me? No. I don't know how to fly a plane. There's no chance I wouldn't crash it. The pilot is the one who's in charge of the plane, and rightly so. God is the one who is in charge of all creation, and rightly so. And yet, we're constantly trying to barge into the cockpit and take the controls. But God is the one who's in charge. He's in control, and it's for our own good. It's good to submit to him fully because he's the sovereign king who loves us enough to sacrifice his own son for us. The cross shows us how God judges sin. The cross shows us that God keeps his promises. The cross shows us that we must obey God's commands, not to gain his favor, but as a response to his goodness. This is a sovereign king worth fully submitting to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who is in charge. We pray that you would help us to live like people who truly believe that. Help us to live like people who rejoice in your sovereignty. Help us to submit to you fully, to see our sin, to turn from it, and return to you in joyful obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.